You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Perry, welcome back to Real Faith Stories. This is going to be, I think, a very interesting conversation. And I'm going to open this conversation with a quote from an experience you recently had, and it's this. Whatever you did to compensate for your childhood traumas became your superpower, which means that even the most horrible circumstances did come with a gift. Yeah. Let's go back and and take a look at the circumstances and situations that led to this quote and the healing that's happened as a result of some deep digging into some things in your life. Well, I've been a heavy user of inner healing for about 15 years. I hit a midlife crisis in 2007 that was like a bucket of bricks. And I was barely functional for about six months. And a whole bunch of stuff that had been pent up and not dealt with suddenly came to the surface. It was right when a point where I'd gotten my business to finally run okay. And I kind of had this idea that I was going to take a little sabbatical and then get back right on it. And my body was like, no, we're going to shut down for repairs for a while. Whoa! And I really was just kind of a wreck for the better part of a year. Got myself into counseling and I, I started slowly learning about how all of that stuff works. By the way, I should mention little detail about what put me in that midlife crisis. I had a counselor. Uh, it was actually a therapist who was part of one of my mentoring groups. And she just kept insisting that we do some work together. And I finally just kind of gave in. Now, she knew that I was duct taped from head to toe, holding down all kinds of emotional stuff. She picked up on that. I know that she did. And that was why she did it. I think she probably had some career reasons for wanting to do that too, which is fine. But she started chiseling away. And there was this one day when she asked me a question and it put me in the prodigal son story. And so I started telling to her, but I was seeing it from a different perspective. I had always seen the prodigal son story from a third party bird's eye view, and I'm watching the dad and I'm watching the son. But this time, I'm the son, and the dad embraces me. And it really struck me in a forceful way, and it popped a scab loose of me starting to grieve some stuff. And within about three days, I was in a full-on depression. And I felt as though somebody died, but I didn't know who it was. And I felt that way for the next six months. And all of these emotions were coming up. And so that's kind of how that started. So I went really hot and heavy with some therapy for a couple of years. And then ever since, I have been regularly almost whether I needed or not, getting healing prayer, different, there's different kinds, you know, there's Sozo, there's Theophostic, there's Emmanuel, there's 
all kinds of different ways that people get healing. And I've been doing a lot of that. But then some new stuff started coming up about six or eight months ago. A client reached out and said, hey, I've done all kinds of head trash work like you. And I've been working with this guy named Jeff, and he's just been creating miraculous results. And I said, well, why don't you introduce me to him? And I started working with Jeff Schatz in Durango, Colorado on Zoom. And I went to see him and we spent five days, one-on-one, eight to five with lunch break, with homework at night, hammering away, very intense. Yeah. And Jeff said, and I agree, that prayer counseling is great. A lot of other kinds of counseling are great. But if you don't really get to the roots of it, you're just snipping off dandelions and they grow back. And that was what I was experiencing. I was like, I dealt with a lot of this stuff. So why is it circling back again? And why is it affecting my marriage? And why is it affecting relationships? So we sat down and over about three months, we mapped out, we made a whole chronology of all the different things that had happened to me. and then. Therefore, what? Therefore, how did you react to it? What did you decide that you believed? How did you start treating people? And completely wrapping my head around it. And he felt like his his whole model was before we get into deep healing prayer to work on this stuff, we need to have an accurate map of what it all is. You actually spent months prepping in essence, for that visit to see him in person for those five intense days, correct? Yeah, six months, really. We started working on this. And again, if there was anybody who would have a reason to argue that I had dealt with all this stuff, it would be me. Yeah. But the symptoms were, no, no, you've still got stuff that's coming up with your wife. You've still got physical manifestations of stress in your body. You're not done with this. And so I went to see Jeff in person and and we just worked on this really hard. So I've done a lot of work on mom issues already. And my mom, when I was for a little bit when I was four and then permanently starting when I was 12, she was bipolar with mild schizophrenia. Anybody that's lived with a mentally ill person might have an idea what I'm talking about. She had a lot of issues, and everybody knew she had a lot of issues. It was public knowledge that she had a lot of issues. And I had done a lot of work around that. And there wasn't a great deal of new stuff that came up about my mom when I worked with Jeff. But what did come up with a lot of things about my dad, and I came out with a substantially different idea about my dad than I had going in. I came to realize he was emotionally abusive. He was physically abusive. I had become the scapegoat for the family's dysfunctions. And a lot of stuff had been shoved really hard down uh, as, as far as it would go. And then I was telling myself a story about our family growing up that was a little bit of a propaganda film. And I didn't realize how bad it was. And and I realized this could sound a little victim, but going back to that quote at the beginning, 
I developed a lot of superpowers to compensate for all of this. And Jeff pointed out to me how useful those things had been. He says, don't discount this. This has been very useful to you. But now that you're getting pieces of your heart back and healing some of your emotions, you get the best of both worlds. Well, let's talk about that. Someone's listening to this, maybe thinking, oh, yeah, I've heard about mother issues. I've heard about father issues. And you just made the point, oh, I'm just a victim or someone else is a victim. Get over it. Let's not go there again. Yeah. It's so easy to toss this thing out with the bathwater when in reality, there's a reason this comes up over and over when people are trying to get things correct in their brains and their hearts, right? That's right. So I'll give you an example. When I was four, my mom lapsed into a bipolar. She'd had a little bit of mental illness issues earlier. So her family kind of knew that she could get that way. So when she was having one of her episodes, I was in bed and I was thirsty and I got up out of bed to get a glass of water. And I walked out into the hallway and the minute she saw me, she flew into a rage and she got extremely angry. I told you to get to bed. And she started chasing me through the living room, hitting me. And my dad, I remember very clearly, was standing there frozen. I swear I know what he was thinking. I was yelling, Dad, make her stop. Dad, make her stop. And he's thinking, I should probably help Perry, but then I would be dishonoring his mother, and we wouldn't be putting up a unified front, and we can't do that and honor your father and mother. And so he's frozen, not doing anything. And she chases me across the room, and I jump up on the chair and try to climb over the chair and behind the chair and hide from her. All I remember is her catching up to me when I got onto the chair, and then I can't remember anything else. And Jeff and I went into healing prayer, which before this really worked properly, he had to de-escalate me. But we went into healing prayer, and he even asked me, he said, go back to your bed before you even got out and ask Jesus to show you how did you feel about your bed and your bedroom and your place in the family and living in your house and what was, your life was like. And we went through an exercise around that. And I came to see that I wasn't really sure what my place was in the family. And I wasn't really sure if I belonged in the family. And I wasn't really sure if I felt like I had a family. And then and then we go into this memory of running away from mom and she's hitting me and I'm jumping up on the chair. And what we saw was as I jumped up on the chair and I'm, I'm terrified, my, my emotions are just maxing out, I split in half and I split into red Perry and blue Perry and red Perry continued physically onto the chair and Red Perry was angry, and Blue Perry was my intuition. It was the part of me that knew what my dad was thinking when I looked at him, and he's looking ambivalent. And Blue Perry split off from me and went down into a hole in the floor, down into the basement, into a cesspool of two feet of crap, 
and stayed there looking through a little basement window. And that's where my intuition went for 50 years. Wow. And later we did an exercise to bring that back and put it all back together. Well, I had done a ton of work on that memory. I hadn't realized that I had split off a part of me. And so there were several incidents like that. There was another one where I split off a yellow part and it was my heart and it went to a soundproof steel canister that was safe so that I didn't have to deal with all of this. And what was left was a bunch of anger shoved down and intellect. There was a major incident that happened when I was almost 14. Just to set the stage, at almost age 14, my mom had been bipolar for a year and a half. Our life had been bedlam at home. It took a good year or so for my dad to figure out what the issue was with mom. She was erratic. She was delusional. Uh, some, some days she was just as sweet as apple pie, and other days she would be just angry and furious and verbally abusive, and she'd swing from one extreme to another. And about six months before that, he had taken her to a psychiatrist, and this was the first time a psychiatrist had ever been involved. And the guy diagnosed her correctly as being bipolar with mild schizophrenia and put her on medication. The next day, when the board of elders at our church, so my dad was a pastor. He was a pastor in a large church. He was not the pastor. He was a supporting pastor. And when the board of elders found out that he had taken her to a psychiatrist, they called a meeting and they called him into the meeting and they said, psychiatrists are evil. And you shouldn't have done this. And we are asking you to resign from your position as an elder and as a pastor. We're going to give you a different job. And they demoted him. And then the next Sunday, in front of 2,000 people, they announced Sunday morning sermon that Bob and his family have been having some problems. And Bob has turned in his resignation as an elder. And they publicly humiliated us. Oh, man. Now it's about six months later. My mom's been on medication, and I was picking on a kid at school. He said, I want to fight, and it, I shouldn't have, but I was. So my fault, he said, well, I want to fight you after school. And my ego was too big to back down. And so we, after school, we went down the street, and we got into a fist fight in front of a dozen kids. And he beat the crap out of me. And I came home with two black eyes. I was laying in my room with my two black eyes, nursing my wounds in the dark. And dad comes home and comes in my room. And he says, uh, you okay? And I'm like, well, I'm, I guess I'm sort of okay. Like my eyes didn't fall out or anything. Once he was convinced that I was basically intact, he verbally tore into me. He said, Perry, why don't? You think if the board of elders finds out you got in a fight, I will probably lose my job. Why don't you think? Perry, I wasn't going to tell you this, but when I got demoted from my job, it wasn't just mom. It was also you. You are mouthy. You are rambunctious. You are out of control. 
you're mouthing off to your mother. It's not just her. It's you too. And when he said that, he scared me to death. Yeah. Like, oh, so he's going to lose his job and I'm going to get blamed and we're going to end up moving from Lincoln, Nebraska, and it's going to be my fault. And I was like, oh, I get it now. I am going to get control of myself. And I remember taking a whole bunch of emotions and shoving them down as hard as I knew and sealing them up. After that, I think, as far as I can recall, I cried one time between then and age 30. Wow. The one time I can remember shedding tears was at the very beginning of when my dad got diagnosed with cancer, which was when I was 14. I didn't cry when he got cancer the second time. I didn't cry when he was going downhill. I didn't cry at his funeral. And a whole bunch of emotions got shoved down. And I did exactly what he told me to, which was to think. I shut off my emotions and I switched on my brain and I switched on an editor and everything that comes out of my mouth, doggone it, I am going to think about it. And what Jeff said was, Perry, that's the superpower part. Mm. He said, I think this is one of the reasons you're such a good marketer is because you learned to do with your brain what most people do with their heart. And you can assign language to that stuff in a way that most people can't. He goes, this is also why you're brilliant in science and engineering and you do all these things. Your brain has been running at triple speed ever since you were 14. And your intuition has been in a basement cesspool since you were four. Your heart's been in a steel canister when you were four. And we just got that stuff out today. So that's why I made the comment about the superpower. Now, my wife has had a bunch of trauma of different kinds, not same as mine also, and she became hypervigilant. And that means she is incredibly talented at logistics and planning and anticipating taking care of kids, especially traumatized kids. We have two adoptions, which have both been very challenging. And I would say she has been a champ at navigating all of that. And it all has to do with trauma she went through. So it's really been a mixed bag. I mean, there's no question that I've been blessed by the superpowers that came from making a vow. Okay, I'm going to think. I am going to get a hold of myself. I am a very, very disciplined person. As we're talking about, this came with a price. And what Jeff said was, when you get this healed up, you get the best of both worlds. You keep your superpowers. You get to keep your brain. But you get your heart back. You get your intuition back. After that five days, when all this was opened up, your heart and your intuition, how did that manifest itself to you? What did you actually see? Well, I've been processing a lot of stuff. I mean, this is still less than a month ago. Mm -hmm. And I've been waking up at night soaked in sweat, which that's common for me if I'm going through some really big emotional change. That'll happen. It's kind of how I can tell. Almost every night, like I have 
you know, two layers of covers and get out of bed and switch to the other layer. And that's been going on. I have felt very raw. I have felt as though my entire picture of my childhood tilted about 15 degrees. I feel like I have a completely different understanding of my dad, which we've really barely gotten into so far in this conversation. And I'm reintegrating. And as we'll get into, I've also started having some really deep, long conversations with my own kids. One of my sons, when I told him about not feeling like I was really fully a member of the family, I said, I have a feeling that you felt that way too in our family. And he said, yes. And an hour and a half of conversation about how um, disenfranchised or how dissociated he felt from the rest of us came out. And it wasn't really the first time we had talked about this. I knew some of that stuff was there, but we went deeper. And what I got to tell you is, if you don't heal stuff, it repeats. Roughly speaking, you are your mother. You are your father. And of course, that's kind of an overgeneralization. But to some extent, that is true. And this is what you said to your children when you set it up for the conversations that you're referring to. I'm just going to read this. Yeah. You said, I don't want you going to a therapist at age 54 and realizing you've been gaslighted for your entire childhood. So if there are wounds, insults, or neglect that's holding you back, let's talk about it now. Let's get it on the table. Let's have the apologies. Make the confessions that set things right today, not 30 years from now. That's huge. Well, you pay compound interest on that stuff. Uh-huh. You experience it every day, every month, every year, and it gets worse and you get more dysfunctional and you have to do more things to compensate whether it's workaholism, alcoholism, whatever. It doesn't get better by itself. Time doesn't heal all wounds. There is a compensation that we wind up operating in our entire lives. And as you said, you pay compound interest on it. It gets stronger and stronger. As much as you may want to get rid of it, mm -hmm. it tends to come back with a vengeance when you experience a lull from that, don't you? Absolutely. You know, all of us, if we have any self-awareness, we have some idea of how we emotionally compensate for things that we don't know how to deal with or things that make us uncomfortable. One of my things is hair pulling. And hair pulling is a little like cutting. It's more common with women than men, but some men do it too. Right after that incident with my dad, probably a month later, I started hair pulling, which meant, you know, I'm I'm starting to get whiskers and and I would sit there and I would pull at my beard and I would pull a hair out of my face and it would feel good. I had no idea why. It took me 20 years. 20 years later, I looked it up on the internet when the internet was kind of new and I found out, oh, that has a name. It's called trichotillomania and it's a difficult one to work with. It's kind of like cutting. It's a mildly self-destructive anxiety reducing behavior. And, you know, it's a little dopamine cycle that you do. And part of hair pulling is that pain equals pleasure. It hurts, but it feels good. It is typically a circuit where when you're growing up, love equals hate and hate equals love. And what you're told is love is really hate. Wow. 
And I worked with a hair pulling counselor about 15 years ago, and she said almost every single person she's worked with was a highly sensitive child who was not protected by one parent from the other parent and who became the scapegoat for the family's problems. That's totally aligned with what you experienced. It's exactly what I experienced. And I was the black sheep of the family. My brother was fairly well-behaved and my sister was as well. And I was the kind of rambunctious, you know, mouthy, loud, energetic one. But that stopped at age 14. I stopped being that way. So when I went to see Jeff, Jeff's number one operating tool is healing prayer. But unlike a lot of other healing prayer people, he has this very systematic process of getting it all out on the table and being able to understand it cognitively because you need to ask a whole bunch of questions about how it's been affecting you and you need to get down to the core emotions. So we hit a roadblock and the roadblock was... Jeff said, Perry, when I ask you to tell me about these these stories and these things that happened to you, I get a narration like a documentary with no emotion, or I get anger. I don't get the tender emotions that are always underneath anger, which is like sadness or despair or tears or loneliness. Like I'm not getting any of that. And he goes, you don't just heal anger because anger is caused by other stuff. You need to get underneath. And we were three days in and we still hadn't gotten there. He said, you are the most escalated client I have ever worked with. And we've got to get to these core emotions or I can't heal you. He he wasn't guilting me or anything. He's just saying, like, this stuff has been shoved down so hard. We're sitting there at 10 o'clock in the morning on the fourth day. He goes, ask Jesus, tell him we're stuck. What do you want me to do? I'm visualizing like a safe, nice place. And I'm sitting next to Jesus. What is Jesus wearing? And, you know, what does he look like? And we're doing all that. Ask Jesus. And I, and Jesus says, call Vivian. Now, Vivian has been on your podcast. Her name is Vivian Hearn. And she's a very dear friend of mine, African-American woman from the west side of Chicago, closest thing I have to a mom. Call Vivian. Okay, so we put the phone on the table and put it on speaker and we call Vivian. Vivian, what are you doing right now? You got a few minutes? She goes, I got time. She goes, I was going to call you this morning. And the Holy Spirit said, no, don't call Perry. Wait for him to call you. (laughs) And she goes, I just came back from the doctor. I just finished some errands. I got all the time you need. What do you need? I got emotional just about that. The fact that she was there, that she was available. She didn't want anything from me. She didn't need anything from me. And she goes, this is your time. Let's talk. I got emotional about that. I started getting a little teary. I got choked up about the fact that she was competent. My mom was a very sweet lady. My mom was a good person. But she was mentally ill, and she was very unpredictable sometimes, and she would say things that she didn't mean, and she was not competent. She was anything but competent. This is when it 
started to come out. And it wasn't the bad stuff that would get to my tender emotions. It was actually the good stuff and the graces that I've had in my life. And Jeff is like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. So not only were we in anger, but we were in sadness and we were in loneliness and we were in despair. One of the things that Jeff had me do before I came to see him was write some letters. He said, I want you to write some letters to your dad and say what you really need to say. And then I want you to write letters back to yourself from your dad, the way that you would like to hear back from your dad. And one of the things that tumbled out in the letter writing process was the day your dad shoved his, basically his church politics down your throat and blamed you and you shoved all those emotions down, that was the day you lost your dad. It wasn't the day he died three years later. It was that day. That was the worst day of your life. So we had to unpack all that. So Jeff says, so Perry, I want you to ask Jesus to show you what you did that day inside your heart and what all of that looks like. And so we went into a prayer session and I said, well, what it looks like is that at the top of my chest, I have this Teflon round disc on the end of a pole, like a, a steel rod. And I take that steel rod and I shove it down. And all I'm just going to shove all the, those emotions down as far as I can. And they get pushed all the way down to my hips. And he says, so ask Jesus what are the sides of this container made out of? And so we start looking around. They're made out of iron rings of rage. They are glowing red like hot iron. And Jeff says, ask Jesus, how much of your anger is directed at your dad? And how much is directed at yourself? And the answer was 40% dad, 60% me. In other words, all of my frustrations about the entire family situation and everything that I was doing, I was 60% blaming myself. Now, the truth is, our family was going through a horrific crisis. We were outcasts in our church. I've lost half my mom, and that now I just lost most of my relationship with my dad. And I am telling myself at a deep level that this is my fault. And I am angry at myself and it's all shoved down. And so we, we pull that Teflon disc out and we go, so Jesus, show us what's down there. Well, the first thing we see is these black charcoal looking, it's like my, uh, imagine my chest being empty and down around my hips, there's this mashed down bed of black coal. That's what it looked like. And we go, what is that black coal stuff? And the answer was, that is hatred and rage. Okay, what do you want us to do with that? Pick it out and, and throw it away. So we, we pick it all out and throw it away. So what's left? What looks like a bunch of burned flesh. Jesus, can you shrink us down so we can go walk around down there and really see what's going on? Okay, so we shrink ourselves down. We walk around in this burnt flesh. And I start to see this like little blade of grass growing out of the 
burnt flesh. Jesus, what's that? That's sadness. And I can see it starting to grow. It's like this grass is growing out of my burnt flesh. Jeff goes, ask Jesus, what do you want to do with that sadness? And the answer comes back, I want you to water it with your tears. Well, we were confronting the fact that I didn't know how to cry. Now, I have learned how to cry as an adult. I've been there for a long time. But there was still this part of me from age 14 that didn't know how to express those emotions. That was immediately after we had that phone call with Vivian. I started to get into these other emotions. And so some of the most productive stuff that that really started shifting some things around He said, Jesus, what can we do to set this stuff right? And he said, well, let's have a conversation with your dad. We we actually had two of them. And the, the first one, I was sitting in the living room of the house where I grew up in, and I needed Vivian to sit next to me. So I imagined that Vivian comes with me to help me talk to my dad. Vivian, by the way, is a social worker who has spent a lot of her career working with the literally most at-risk men in the entire city of Chicago in the most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago. She's worked on and off at a halfway house for years there. So she is a pro at working with trauma and all of that. And so she sits next to me and I start talking to my dad and we, we take these iron rings of rage out of my chest and we put them on a steel plate on the living room floor and we pile them up and eventually we take them out and we get rid of them. And then I had a a second conversation with my dad where we say, Jesus, invite my dad to come and sit with me so we can have a conversation with dad now. We start doing that and Jeff says, so where are you? And I am in my bedroom, sitting in front of my stereo, and what's going on? Pink Floyd is playing on the stereo. And when is it? It's November 1986, and Dad just died about a month ago. And my friend Leif is coming over, and we're going to listen to CDs. So we were like the two first people in our high school to buy a CD player. And we would have these little, you know, stereo get-togethers and play music. And I remember one night, it was about a month after my dad died, Leif came over and we played music all night. And I realized, well, I couldn't do that when dad was alive because dad hated it when I played loud music and he would stamp his foot on the floor and, and say, turn that down. So I couldn't have Leif over. I would have to go over to Leif's house. But now dad was gone. And Leif is coming over to my house. And I hit a realization. When your dad died, you weren't really sad. You were relieved. And I'm not saying that my dad was like a bad guy all the time. For the most part, my dad was a very good, very honorable, salt-of-the-earth guy. But he didn't protect me from my mom. He blamed me for our problems. He dumped his church politics on me and made it my fault. It had almost nothing to do with me. In fact, it had nothing to do with me. There was a whole bunch of other stuff going on at that church. It was very unhealthy, very dysfunctional, and it all got dumped on me. And I didn't have that much of a relationship with him. 
And I didn't even know it until a few weeks ago when we did that session. I was more relieved than sad when he was gone. Wow. He had a pessimism and a negativity about me that I found oppressive. And so I went along to get along. Okay, I'll be the good kid. I'll be obedient. But I didn't really have much of a relationship with him. We've covered a lot of ground so far. And for the listener, I'd like to pause and suggest someone hearing this might be thinking, this is so overwhelming. So much of this resonates with me. And it's overwhelming to the extent that I don't even know what to do next. How do I even step my foot in the right direction in order to determine, do I need healing? If so, how do I do that? What would be a step you'd recommend at this moment for somebody listening to this that might be thinking that? Alcoholics Anonymous has this great saying, we are only as sick as our secrets. The first step is for your history to stop being a secret. About three months before my dad died, and we knew he was going downhill fast, and we knew it was our last vacation. We were in California. Some friends had generously provided for us to take a last vacation trip. And we were talking about what's life going to be like when dad's gone. And we're having a frank family conversation. And dad was really upset that he hadn't been able to pay for our college education. We didn't really have much money saved up for that. And I remember thinking, ah, eh, that's, you know, not a huge deal. We'll figure it out. And then dad says, you know what I'm really sad about is that if you kids go off the rails and start doing bad things after I'm gone, I won't be around to salvage my reputation. Oh my goodness. I immediately knew that like, that is not something he should be saying, but I didn't want to get into a fight about it either. And so I just let it go. But I remember thinking, thanks for the father blessing, dad. Thanks for the vote of confidence, dad. And it really tells you what his priorities were. And it tells you why I didn't have much of a relationship with him. Yeah. And it made me furious. I mean, I wanted to slam his head through a wall. You don't say that to your kids when you're dying. That's what I get. By any reasonable standard, I was a good kid. I wasn't smoking pot. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't drinking. I was coming home when I was supposed to come home. I was working hard in school. But there was this paranoia. And of course, my dad lived in fear. I mean, I haven't told you much about my church, but you're kind of starting to get an idea how knuckled down and duct taped they were and mm -hmm. legalistic. So what do you do? If you're relating to this, you need to sit down and talk to somebody who will listen to you. For now, it could just be a friend. The nice thing about a therapist is it's kind of like buying yourself a friend. They'll listen to your problems and you don't have to listen to theirs. Right. And they're trained and they know how to do it. But like, stop carrying this around all by yourself. It's not healthy. I had been trained and conditioned in a hundred different ways to protect dad's reputation. There's nothing more important than dad's reputation. And so that was the story I told myself for the last 37 years. Now I'm obviously telling everybody the story. Would my dad be happy? about the fact that this is being told on a podcast that a whole bunch of people are going to listen to. No, but let's think about it for a second. When Jesus is hanging on the cross in sheer agony, and he says, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. Did we still hear about what they did? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the point. You can't forgive something that you're pretending is not happening. There it is. And a whole lot of people's family story that they tell everybody is a propaganda film. So the story I always told myself is that my parents were as honest as the day is long. Like, I always say, if my mom was hiding Jews in the attic from the Nazis and they asked her, are you hiding Jews? She'd have to think about whether she would lie to them or tell them the truth. Like, that's how honest my mom was. I'm not exaggerating. But on another level, they were lying to us all day long. A thought comes to mind as you're sharing this here, and it's with respect to pride versus humility. And I can imagine with somebody wanting to take a step forward into the light to get this stuff out in the open, the enemy would love nothing more than to hinder you from doing that. But what I love is the scripture that God gives grace to the humble, and there is a special grace that he wants to extend to anyone listening to this who's willing to bring this out into the light, whatever it is. And there's healing at the end of it, isn't there, Perry? The truth will set you free. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John tell the truth about what happened to Jesus and who did it. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And and then it's in God's hands. Like, you don't even know how God decided to deal with that. We don't even know. We, we know Jerusalem got sacked 30 years, 40 years later and absolutely decimated. We know that there were 500 crucifixions a day going on outside of Jerusalem so the Romans were tearing everything to pieces. We know stuff like that. But the thing about the gospel is all human communities and all religions especially scapegoat somebody. And the Jesus story is no exception, except what's different about the Jesus story is that the New Testament is blisteringly honest about the fact that an innocent person got scapegoated and that that's what humans do. All of the other scapegoatings are done. There, a damsel gets thrown in the volcano and they go, all right, problem solved. No, problem not solved because she was innocent and the evil people are still doing evil. That's how it works everywhere else. You can't heal the wound until you're truthful about what innocent person is getting blamed. And this works itself out in many, many different forms. When children are being molested, or children are being you know, physically abused, or children are verbally blamed for the family's problems, that's the scapegoat mechanism happening full force. And I said, you know, this is embarrassing. I am embarrassed that when my dad wanted to switch churches when I was six years old, my mom didn't want to go. And my mom got a prophetic word. Now, you have to understand, they didn't accept prophetic words where I grew up. And they didn't have any grid for it. But I believe that my mom was a seer and that she had a prophetic gift that nobody would acknowledge. Dad said, well, I want to go to church B. And she goes, well, church A, where we are now, God told me, 30 years from now is going to be the biggest church in Lincoln, and we're supposed to stay here. And he goes, no, we're not. And he turned her over and spanked her and said, you're going to obey me. He physically abused her 
And you know what? 30 years later, that church was the biggest church in Lincoln with 5,000 people. I mean, just that picture in my mind is, I can't even hardly accept it. He did that. Man. And so now what happens? He takes her to a church she doesn't want to go to, that God said not to go to. He says, I'm going to fix that ministry. I'm going to balance that ministry. That's what he said. He said, this has a lot of potential, but this place has a lot of problems, and I'm going to fix the problems. Well, he started working there when I was 11. My mom went bipolar when I was 12. And being under the pressure of being a pastor's wife at a highly legalistic church had a lot to do with it, I'm sure. And then we went through two years of bedlam. And he got demoted from his job. And a week after he got reinstated in his job, because he did vindicate himself and he stood his ground, he got his old job back. He found out he had cancer. And three years later, he died of cancer. I think, I don't know, none of us know, but I think all of that could have been avoided if he had listened to mom when I was six. She gave him a prophetic word. Now, that's embarrassing. I am embarrassed to tell you that my dad spanked my mom. But, you know, stuff like this happens in families. And until we acknowledge, it'll keep going on in some way, shape, or form. As we finish here, Perry, I think that's a good place to pause. I would love for you to pray for those listening to this. There are people who this conversation has pushed certain buttons really hard or it has yanked on the string of the ball of the yarn really hard. And I pray wisdom and discernment and for the right listening ears to show up. And I pray for the courage to face whatever is at the bottom of that swamp, whatever is at the bottom of that cesspool, that we're only as sick as our secrets and that the truth will set us free. And I just pray for faith to know the truth will set you free. And knowing the truth is never as scary as hiding it and that fear would not prevail. And, and I also want to give some credit here I've worked with lots of counselors, a lot of them amazingly talented. Nobody ever got as far down to the bottom of my swamp as Jeff Shat did. He's at revivefamily.com, and I, I think I would be doing a disservice not to mention the people that helped me get there. And I just want to encourage you, however it is that you approach this, the truth will set you free. Thanks for the courage for sharing this, Perry. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having a pretty raw podcast, Brian. <laughs> You're welcome. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.